Dermatology Snapshots, September 2022. Paper 1. Short courses of cyclosporin can induce long remissions in chronic spontaneous urticaria. Alves et al. Journal of the European Academy Dermatology and Venereology. Why we chose this paper. Treatment of chronic spontaneous urticaria has been transformed by omeluzumab, but there remains a small cohort who don't respond, and there exists insufficient evidence to guide their management. Study aim and design. Retrospective, observational study spanning five years at a specialist urticaria centre in Portugal. Patients who hadn't responded to two or more H1 antagonists, four times daily dose, were treated with cyclosporin, 3 mg per kilogram per day. What were the main findings? They reported on 25 patients who had a good or very good response, of which 92% were female, median duration of chronic spontaneous urticaria, 24 months, 92% had angioedema, Complete clearance was achieved in 76%, usually relatively quickly, 21 days. Cyclosporin was stopped within 5 months median, and 80% had sustained clinical remission, even after one year follow-up. Those that relapsed did so within 4-9 to nine months, and responded similarly to retreatment with cyclosporin. Authors suggest the type 2b autoimmunity drives chronic spontaneous urticaria in those with low IgE who do not respond to omeluzumab and who have a positive basophil histamine release assay and that this subgroup responds quickly and completely to cyclosporin. Limitations. Is it applicable? A small but helpful study looking at this subgroup. Retrospective and observational. What's the take-home message? This small study suggests that amongst cyclosporin responders, particularly with low IgE and positive basophil histamine assay, chronic spontaneous urticaria remission may be rapid and sustained without need for long-term treatment courses. Paper 2. Isotretinoin laboratory monitoring and acne treatment Adelphi Consensus Study, Sharatel, JAMA Dermatology. Why we chose this paper? There's a lot of variation in practice in terms of laboratory testing in isotretinoin. The last BAD guidelines in 2010 suggested we check full blood count, liver function tests, fasting lipids, before treatment, and six to eight weeks later, then every three months. Evidence suggests that the most commonly detected abnormalities are mild, transient and not clinically impactful. Study aim and design. A diverse international group of 22 dermatologists, specialists in acne, completed four rounds of anonymous electronic surveys in 2021 to 2022. Consensus was reported if greater than 70% agreed. What were the main findings? Check ALT and triglycerides within one month before initiation and at peak dose, 79 to 90% agreed, but not monthly or after completion. 
Do not check full blood counts and use the knees at any point during treatment. Over 70% agreed. Do not check gamma GT, bilirubin, albumin, total protein, LDL, HDL or CRP. 73 to 81% agreed. Limitations is applicable. Participants were recruited voluntarily based on links to professional organisations and research relating to acne. Due to initial lack of consensus on liver function testing, they provided an educational video from a hepatologist, which may have impacted subsequent scoring. What's the take home message? Several recent studies have shown that significant blood abnormalities are exceedingly rare during isotretinoin therapy. And this study showed that there is general consensus amongst acne specialists to reduce traditional blood monitoring schedules. What is the Delphi method? The Delphi method, developed in the 1950s, is a process of arriving at a group consensus by providing experts with rounds of questionnaires, as well as the group response, before each subsequent round. Other methods of consensus development are nominal group technique, aka an expert panel, and consensus development conference. Paper 3. Clinical presentation and virological assessment of confirmed human monkeypox virus cases in Spain. A prospective observational cohort study. Taryn Vincenti, The Lancet. Why we chose this paper. After COVID-19, viral epidemics naturally spook us a fair bit. The monkeypox outbreaks has skin manifestations as part of the cardinal features, and so it's important that we stay abreast of this disease. Study aim and design. A multi-centre, prospective, observational cohort study across three sexual health clinics in Spain, where only laboratory-confirmed monkeypox cases were recruited. What were the main findings? Of 181 patients, 175 males, 166 were gay, bisexual or men who have sex with men. The median age was 37 and 40% had HIV. All participants presented with skin lesions. 90% had pustular lesions, 21% papular lesions and 26 vesicular. The hands and feet, 60%, and genital area, 55%, were commonly affected, as was the trunk and extremities, 57%. Oral ulceration was seen in 25%. 85% had lymphadenopathy. Proctitis was the most common complication seen in 25%. Viral load in lesions was significantly higher than in pharyngeal swabs, and authors suggest skin-to-skin -skin contact as a mechanism of transmission. Limitations. Is it applicable? Some investigators were dermatologists, while others were sexual health doctors. What's the take-home message? The monkeypox outbreak in Europe appears to be largely restricted to the gay, bisexual, men who have sex with men population. Postules are present in almost all cases, and hands, feet, genitalia are commonly affected.
Paper 4. Clinical Features and Natural Course of Paediatric Longitudinal Melanarchia, a Retrospective Cohort Study in Korea. Lee et al., Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, summarised by Dr Rachel Blythe. Why we chose this paper? Longitudinal melanarchia may be an early sign of now melanoma in adults, but large studies on paediatric longitudinal melanarchia are lacking. Study aim and design. A retrospective cohort analysis of clinical features of paediatric patients under 18 with longitudinal melanarchia, which included 703 longitudinal melanarchia lesions and 381 children. What were the main findings? Longitudinal melanarchia occurred at a mean age of 6.6 years and congenital cases were rare, 1.8%. Most had a single lesion and fingernails were involved twice as often as toenails. During follow-up, 15% experienced darkening at least once and the majority stabilised within three years. The width of longitudinal melanarchia was wider than one-third of the nail plate in almost half the cases, and 16% grew wider at least once. Hutchinson sign was detected in 2.7% of cases. 5% of cases experienced complete regression within four and a half years of onset, a phenomenon which has been rarely reported. Single, left-sided and homogeneously pigmented lesions were the most likely to regress. Limitations is it applicable? A retrospective single study centre of patients with only East Asian ethnicity. What's the take home message? This study reassures us that though melanarchia may grow darker or wider in children, follow up without intervention is usually the correct approach. Most longitudinal melanarchia cases will persist in children, but single, left-sided and homogeneously pigmented lesions are most likely to regress. Paper 5. The association between frontal fibrosing alopecia, sunscreen and moisturisers, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Magfor et al., Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Why we chose this paper. There's a lot of speculation that skin care products play a key role in frontal fibrosing alopecia pathogenesis. And indeed, it's something we're often asked. Is there anything I should avoid? Being a familiar question to all. Study aim and design. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis that gathered studies which looked at the association between sunscreen, moisturiser and frontal fibrosing alopecia. What were the main findings? Nine studies were included, with a total of 1,248 frontal fibrosing alopecia patients and 1,459 controls without dermatological condition and or androgenic alopecia. For sunscreen, odds ratio was 2.21 with 95% confidence interval 1.13 to 
P less than 0.001. For moisturisers, odds ratio was 2.09, with a 95% confidence interval. 1.49 to 2.92. P less than 0.002. Limitations. Is it applicable? This was a retrospective, self-reported survey data. What's the take-home message? There seems to be some association between frontal fibrosing alopecia and skincare products, but these studies don't report on specific ingredients. It's not enough to indicate causality, and we need to further studies to look into this. Paper 6. What exactly are odds ratios? The first thing to know is that odds are not at all intuitive unless you're an avid gambler. Take this example. The odds of rolling a 3 on dice is 1 in 5, or 5 to 1, which isn't the same as the probability of rolling a 3, which is 1 in 6. Odds ratio show the odds of an outcome in those expo exposed to something relative to those not exposed. Let's apply that to the, these results. Here, the outcome is developing frontal fibrosing alopecia and the exposure is sunscreen use. So really the results should be interpreted as persons with frontal fibrosing alopecia have 2.21 times the odds not risk of having been exposed to sunscreen as those without frontal fibrosing alopecia. Or that the odds of frontal fibrosing alopecia are 221% higher in sunscreen-exposed persons. We echo your thoughts. How on earth does one make any sensible use of that? Remember that these are odds ratios, not relative risk. Relative risk is what we intuitively understand better and what's easiest for clinicians to apply. It's basically the ratio of two probabilities representing the change in risk from baseline. If we had an odds ratio of 1.4, we'd say that the odds of a disease is 40% higher in exposed people. Whereas if we had a relative risk of 1.4, we could say that exposed people are 40% more likely to be diseased. When, events, when event rates are rare, the odds ratio and relative risk are similar enough in number but otherwise they can differ quite a bit and they shouldn't be interpreted in the same way.
Thank you.